This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. From 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man... Uh, came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, I say this to your shame. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and movable always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Good morning. As Ted said, we, uh, we did go to the PCA Assessment Center, and there is where I actually started uh, with this text. They asked me to give a sermon, a 10-minute sermon, which you're not getting that, um, uh, to your to the fall, you'll see. But uh, um, a 10-minute sermon about from our first worship service. How would you start? How would you begin? And this passage is one is of how we would begin. If I were planning a church, I think that this would be a great characterization of what that church should look like. The gospel as of first importance. And so that's, that's why we start here. And the good part is that all of that text will not be coming out today. Much of that is a teaching in itself. Uh, a thing for you to look at. One of the biggest chapters in all of the Bible on the resurrection, most important chapters, is, is 
gladly for me a, a, a something that Ted preached on last week. It's not something I have to go into as much. You can just go back to last week and look at the resurrection or the last two weeks. So it's good stuff. But the assessment was a, a tough thing. It was, I would describe it much like the Citadel. That's where I went to college. And we always said it's a, it's a good place to be from. And it wasn't like the Citadel in that they drug us in, shaved our heads, screamed at us, and made us do all these things, and then say, okay, now, now you can plant a church. That's, that's not how the assessment was. The assessment was bad because my wife and I both had to, to give six references. Six references. And then we had to take these evalu- the same evaluations that our references gave. We had to take, and they had to turn all of this in, and we couldn't see any of it. I couldn't see my wife's, and I couldn't see any of those six. She couldn't see her six or, or mine. And so we get there, and the assessors are the only people, the only people with everything the six said about you, everything your wife says about you, and then everything you say about you. They're the only people that knows that there might be a gap. There might be a difference. It, it might not line up. And so, yeah, I, was, I could say Jen and I were pretty nervous. <laughs> go in there and, and meeting these people. And, you know, it came down to the last day. We got a phone call right before, and my daughter had broke her arm. <laughs> so right before we get our score, she had cracked a little bone in her arm. Turned out to be not near as bad as we expected or uh, thought it was. Um, but we, we worked through all that, and then we get our score. And they sit you down, and they, they, they were so gracious to us. They told us this great paragraph on our strengths, and then they get into your weaknesses, and as I feared, as I had dreaded, there was a discrepancy. There was a difference. See, they, they, a lot of the evaluation is this one to five score. Five being the best, one being the worst. And on average, I rated myself a point lower than, every, than all of my assessors and all of my, all of my references and my wife. And... That could look like humility. It, it could, oh, wow, he's a really humble guy. They didn't see it that way. What they saw is a guy who refuses to believe the gospel. He refuses to live in all that Christ made him to be. All that Christ accomplished, the victory that he's given us over this death, I'm a man that refuses to believe it. And he says, if God, Mike, Jennifer, if you're going to plant a church, you have to grow here. You have to grow up. You have to mature. How do you do that? How do we mature? How do we grow up in Christ? Answer that question in your own mind right now. If somebody came to you and said, how do I grow up? How do I mature? What would you say to them? What would your answer be? And I I would propose that your answer says the most about your maturity. Paul, in this letter, it's a great letter, and we're at the end of the chapter. We're, we're at chapter 15. 16's after, and it's, he's just cleaning up stuff at that point. But Paul, in this letter, he's addressing an immature church, a church who has tons of gifts, has some wealth, some poor, a very diverse church, but they, they are not mature. They are missing it. He says in chapter 3, I fed you with milk. I'm talking about when he first met with them. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it and even now you are you are still not ready you're still not ready for it and uh colossians uh, the end of it of of chapter one he says uh, we see 
we see Paul's goal. He says is to present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all the energy that powerfully works in me. So Paul's goal in all of his ministry was to present us as mature. It is his goal in this letter in 1 Corinthians. That's what he's doing. He's trying to build these people into the fullness of Christ. That's what he says maturity is in Ephesians. It's the fullness of Christ. It's you walking in him, believing him, taking it in. Paul says in chapter 14 that the Corinthians are not mature because they fail to stand in the gospel in their thinking. Their thinking's off, and it's leading to an immature life. And so I would propose today, if we are going to grow into the fullness of Christ, if we as a church are going to mature, if you as an individual, if we are going to love our city well and mature here in this city, and continue to grow into the church we want to be, we, we must think out the implications of the gospel. That's how we mature. That's the answer. It's the gospel. It's the same thing we started with. So I have three points. They are, if we're going to grow into the fullness of Christ, we must have a faith that is deepened by our past, a hope that is shaped by our future, and a love that abounds in the present. So we need a past, a future, and a present. So let me pray and lead us into it. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for leading us. Thank you for giving us a hope. Uh, thank you that we, we have your resurrection to look at, to know that you have accomplished so much in us. And I pray that through your word this morning, you would help us take this in deeper, and it would lead to great fruit in our lives. Please lead us, Holy Spirit. pray in your name. Amen. So if we are going to grow into the fullness of Christ, we must have a faith that is deepened by our past. Now, where do we get this? Uh, verses 1 through 3 say this. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received. First importance. That is this Greek word that means fundamental. It means foundation. This is the most important thing. When and to the degree you leave this, your life turns to folly. It is the fundamentals. It's what we have to stick to. He, then he goes on and he says, which you received. This, the gospel is good news that has to go inside of us. It has to come in us. We, it, it can't just sit out there. It must go in and go in and go in. It's like my son Keller. He has this one video he watches over and over he was just about to turn two, and one day he's in the kitchen, and he says his ABCs. And we're like, what? He can barely talk, and he knows his ABCs? And it's because he's taken this, he's watched this video over and over and over, and it's, it's taken, it's become a part of him. Jim, can I have some water? <laughs> Sorry, I've been really, um, So the gospel is the first priority. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean it's the first priority because it's how we get into the faith. It's the first priority because it's how we continue in the faith. It's our start, and it's how we live. It's our every day. Tej, sorry. Again, um, what is the gospel? He tells us here. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Thank you. Sorry. He died, he was buried, and all of this was according to the great plan of God. This is your past. 
All of scripture, everything we have was pointing to this day. Everything was about this. That's why it's important. And this is, you take this in, and it's the gate into Christianity, but it's now the ongoing power forward. It's his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It must be received, it must be taken in. And so now you, you have to ask, well, what's the issue? Why is Corinth, why, why are they struggling? Why do they have all the issues that, that we'll get to? What, what's going on? They have received it, and then hidden right in the middle, right in the middle after that hyphen or that dash, it says this. It says, uh, unless you believed in vain. Every commentary I looked at said this, this word vain is not the, the best translation, or it's not that it's bad, it's just it doesn't give you the fullness of this word. Vain is definitely a part of the issue. Their, their beliefs are not producing fruit. It's not, it, it's not causing them to be different. But the, the word more fully carries the meaning that it, they don't give due consideration, or that they believed haphazardly, or that their beliefs are superficial. Now, it hopefully reminds you of the parable of the sower. You remember what Jesus says? He says the seed, there's some that fell by the path. He said it's sown, the word of God's going out. Some fell by the path, it's on top of the ground. The birds came and took it away. Some fell in the rocks. And it just, a, just a little bit of depth to it. And it came up and it was gone because it had, it had no roots to support it. Some were planted just as deep as the thorns, the hardships. And then isn't that many, a lot of us, the gospel's only as deep as the circumstances? And so when circumstances come in, the thorns choke it out. It chokes the gospel out of our lives. And then the other one, it fell in the good soil. And the good soil is the depth. It's the one where the seed goes down deep into it. And that's what he's saying. The gospel has to go in deep. It's got to be deeper than everything else in our life. It's fundamental. It has to go over and over into our lives. That's what it means. That's what they're not doing. They have not considered the gospel. They have not given it the due weight and the due consideration it deserves. They believe superficially. Um, remember who he's talking to. It's the people of Corinth. Gifted. Great. Tons of gifts. Remember the chapter 12, all about their gifts. All about the things they have done. And then he gets to this, uh, well, I'm sorry, Corinth a great way to understand is that Corinth was a port city, had trade routes going everywhere, so it attracted all these people. Listen who it attracted, though. This is very important. It attracted traders. It attracted freed slaves, entrepreneurs. It, it was the people who wanted to get the most out of life. They, they are in these other places in the world, and we want to come here to make it. And why could they make it? Even though it's a Greek city, it was founded by the Romans. And the Romans, the, the patronage system was the patronage system was is what dominated there, and what a pa- the patronage system was this. It was where we th- a lot of people think we get our disciple disciplee uh, style from. It's you could go there and you could be a nobody, and you could you could cling to this patron, and then he would mentor you. He would give you advice. He would give you little things you should do, and then you would slowly begin to make it because he walked beside you, and then this patron would get more and more clients is what they were called and the more clients he got the more successful the more wonderful and then the more wonderful and the successful that he got well guess what the clients under him were were beginning to be identified by their patron like wow you you follow him 
That's, that's great. Can I, will you be my patron? And you see how it works? Then they become a patron. And slowly, they rise. And then the more clients they get, the greater the patron gets. And it's just this hierarchy. And it led Corinth to this deadly, nasty corruption that did not give them what they longed for. It didn't give them the hope they had wanted. It did not lead to life. And so they, these are the people he's preaching to. These are who he's talking to. And guess what we see in the church? We see those <coughs> who were spiritually gifted were the most respected. We see that the gifts became a major focus of this church. We also see during the Lord's Supper, the rich sat up front and ate their food in front of everybody and the poor were in the back. We, we also see that them arguing, I am with Paul, I am with Apollos, I am with Peter. Do you see what's happened? Because the gospel has is, is not been thought out, the implications for what it means to their lives has not been thought out, their culture filled that gap for them. The, 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 everything that Corinth was built on, it became the DNA of that church. And so the, the fallacy, the issue of the Corinth church is that they had a Christianity that they made. It was, okay, I've, I'm, I'm in now, my sins are forgiven, and now I'm shaped by my culture. You know, many say that the Southern Church is very much like this. That that is a very similar to us. We've been shaped too much by our culture. I don't know. Paul says not only do we need faith, not only do we have to take this in, that we, we have the, all of Scripture attesting to this and this got to go in us, but we also need a hope. We, we, need, we need something in front of us that's going to encourage us and help us stand. So he says if we're going to grow in the fullness of Christ, we need a hope that is shaped by our future. The hope of the resurrection underlies the entire book of, book of 1 Corinthians. He ends with it because it is everything in it. All the commentaries show that he drops breadcrumbs the entire time pointing to chapter 15. Um, my purpose this morning is not to unpack the arguments. Verse 12 tells us that and that verse 12 was not one of the verses I put up here. Verse 12 says that there were many that didn't believe in it. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And I'm not going to go through their heresy and how he answered it. What our, our benefits this morning is how is the gospel shaped? How are you shaped by the gospel and the resurrection? How does it give us hope? How does it lift us up? Paul says that Christ was buried. He died and he was buried. Both of those are, are in the Greek tense. It's their past tense. It's called the heiress. Then he says... He was raised. And here he changes tenses. It's the perfect tense. Now, the perfect tense is hard for English. It's hard for us to bring it out. Our, our, we, we can't get our mind around it. Like, our words don't do it well like they did. The, t- the perfect tense is described this way. It's the verb tense used by the writer to describe a completed verbal action. So it's something that's been completed. It is something that happened in the past. But listen, that occurred in the past, but which produced a state of being or a result that exists in the present. Now he puts this in the perfect tense. The emphasis of the perfect is not the past action so much as it is the present state of affairs resulting from the past action. He says he was raised, and he says it because this, what happened then, what happened in the past has present results. There are present implications. There is a new state of affairs, and that's what the resurrection's about. What is the new state of affairs? It's new creation. There is a whole new order, a new creation. Paul tells us that Christ is the first fruits. He says he's the first fruits. The first fruits was referring back to these, 
to this, uh, these festivals. It was Passover and the festival of Pentecost. Passover, obviously you know, is when uh, Ted's preached some on it. It's when they were coming out. They put the blood of the lamb on their door and the, and the, the angel of death passed over them. And the, the, the lamb was killed instead of them. It was that one and it was Pentecost. Pentecost is when they got out and they went to the mountain. They were given the law. So that was the, the, the Pentecost and the Passover. And obviously we know that our new Passover is what? Easter. It's the resurrection. Our new Pentecost is what? The giving of the Spirit, not the law. The Spirit has been given now. And so there is a new thing happening. It's, it's very different. It's a new creation. And that's what Paul's talking about here with hope. Paul shows us this through his own life. He says, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. A different word. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God in me. Paul was accused by this church of being someone who wasn't a real apostle. He's not a real apostle. He wasn't one of the twelve. And he, they said all these horrible things towards him. And, and then you, we will even see 2 Corinthians shows the first letter didn't go well. He is, he is fighting a beast here in Corinth with the way this culture has taken over them. And so it didn't go well. And untimely born, it's, it's, it's like, it's, it were meaning that he didn't, that the gestation period wasn't long enough. He wasn't one of the 12. He wasn't one of those ones that walked with Jesus. And he says, it's because I persecuted the church. Paul has a history. Just like the gospel is our history, we bring a history into it. We bring our past and our hardships and our hurts and our brokenness right into it. And so does he. And he says, as one untimely born, you're right. I didn't. I wasn't one of those. I persecuted the church. I was an idiot. But, but, by the grace of God given to me, I am what I am. Paul has a new identity. The resurrection, what Christ did, him, what he signifies as the first fruits, has come into Paul. He is a new creation. He is someone that's different. And it's proving to not be in vain. It is producing things in his life. And Corinth, the church itself, is evidence of it. You believed it. You see it. You are my evidence that this happened. And the resurrection is evidence for me that my sin has been dealt with. My past is dealt with. It's over. I am a new creation. We must be shaped by the resurrection. All of us bring our stories, our hardships in, and we, we have to take Jesus' story into us and let it confront us. Work it in. Let it confront the hardships and hurts we bring in. And we, as like Paul, say, we, we, I am what I am. And you see, Paul, he says, actually, I worked harder than all of them. All of them. The least of the apostles worked harder than all of the rest of the apostles. What, when you get grace, when you get what happened in the resurrection, when you get that you're a new creation, your brokenness leads only to work, only to moving out, only to, to engage in, engaging the world that God has called us to. Paul says we need faith and we need hope. If we're going to stand, we need hope. But with Paul... We say, as he says in chapter 14, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. He says right after, he starts chapter 13, 
You can have faith to move mountains. You can have all of the knowledge in the world. You can have this amazing, amazing desire for what's to come. You can have hope. You can have all that. And if you have not love, you have nothing. Nothing. Without this, everything else is worthless. Why? I've been thinking about this a lot over the last couple weeks. Why is love the greatest? What about it? What is it? And this is some of the things I've come up with. You know, just at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, he he, he gives this beautiful poem. And just at the end, when you think he's just going to cut it off, listen to what he says. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I will know fully, even as I am fully known. So now faith and hope and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. The reason love is the greatest is because when the new heavens and the new earth come, faith, it's gone. Hope, it's gone. Why? The, the church now is like we're immature. Immature in the reality of the big picture. We need faith. We need hope. These are the things he's given us until he comes back. But when he comes back, they're gone. We will, not, we will never need them again. But, but, in the new heavens, and the new earth, what remains? Love never ends. He gives us now what the currency of the kingdom will be, love. Love is what the future has that we bring into the now. We need love now. Now, I know I, I haven't given a ton of application. I don't, I don't feel like I have to. Faith and hope, are they real? Do you love? Do you love? Do you love well? What does your family look like? What does your marriage look like? What does your witness to those around you look like? Do you love well? well if, if so, if, if, if you can say yes to that, you know that faith and hope, there's something to it. There's substance to it. That, that it has depth to it. But to the degree you don't love, that's how superficial your faith and hope are. He makes it so simple for us. Paul tells us that the resurrection brings a new state of affairs, the new creation. And he says now, in this new world, this new order, if we're gonna live here and do it well, we, we need to take what we've been given from the new world into now. You know, popular opinion for years thought that the, the church at Corinth, their main issue was over-eschatology, over right? Or over, um, over-realized eschatology. And all that means is this. Eschatology is a word for the end. It's, it's the fullness. When, when he comes back, it's, it's the end. That's it. And what, they, what happened was a lot of people thought they believed it had already come that we're in the resurrected state now, and so just do whatever you want. Um, but newer studies have shown the otherwise, that that's not at all what was their issue. Because th- think about it, the whole letter, what has it been about? They're immature. They, they think they're kings, as he says in, in chapter four. They think they've arrived. 
in, into this uh, maturity because of their spiritual gifts and how well they're doing, they, they think they're kings. But he says, no, you're socially divided. You're jealous of each other, of the gifts that, that he has over him or she has over her. There's rich against poor. You're spiritually divided. You, you, you don't get it there. And you tolerate immorality. These are all things that show that you're not mature, that, that you, you don't have it together. And so what we see is not that it was over-realized, not just that the resurrection had come, but what happened is they didn't have enough of it. See, they didn't love well. They didn't have enough of what the future is going to be about. They didn't have too much. They didn't have any of it. They didn't believe that, that, that Jesus had accomplished all of these things. And so they allowed the culture to define them and not his love, not the victory, not him defeating death. They had very little. And so not over but under. And so with us, how much do you have? How, how much have you allowed the resurrection to shape you? You know, uh, my, my, first, my second dad, really, uh, I was adopted by my great uncle, and he was a very bad man. He was not a good man. He abused me and my brothers and abused lots of children. And we watched it all happen, and, and then he would do devotionals and pray with us. Very, very much so a, a Corinthian at heart. He, he claimed it, but his life looked nothing like it. And he, I grew up with him for most of my life, and he abused me for a long time. And then when I was in college, I was at, in Cocoa Beach. He calls me one day, and he tells me my real dad lives there. He says, yeah, your real dad lives in your first dad. So I went to see him, and he wasn't abusive to me, but he didn't care about me at all. He was horrible. Really, really another bad man in my life. And so I left there really broken, really hurt, and I drove all the way back to our hotel, and I lost it. I mean, I, I, I couldn't control what was happening in me. Even when I tell the story now, it just wells up inside of me. And I went to my room, and uh, I went to my, my boss's room, my patron, <laughs> my discipler, um, and I went to him and I told him everything. I, up to that point in my life, I'd never shared that I was abused. I'd never told anybody that men had done the things they had done to me. And I had two men do it. I kept, I, I hid it for all of my life. And that I'm 24 years old, and I go in there and I tell them. And I just, I mean, I unloaded. I was like, Rupert, all of these horrible things have happened. And I'm, I'm crying so hard. I mean, it's just coming out of me. And I was like, and there's more. And I just tell him everything. And I look over, and guess what he does? The fourth man in my life, another man, another man I'm going to entrust myself to. Is he going to hurt me? Is he going to do those same horrific things to me? No. He grabbed me, and he cried with me. He hugged me. He loved me. And he cared me, and he began to walk with me through those hardships. And guys, I'll tell you, there are counselors that tell me, you shouldn't be where you are. And I really believe that God used that man to bring the currency of the kingdom into my life. Love confronted me. It, it grabbed me right where I was, and it nailed me, and it transformed me. Now, I have issues more than most of you. I have so many of them I'm working through, and I'm continuing to go through counseling and all that stuff, but love did something to me. Love is the power we've been given for the now. Our, our vision is to make Orlando beautiful. How will we do it? We have to bring the future into the now. We, we, we give, we take to our people, our neighbors, the love that he's given us 
Remember his, his two commands? Love the Lord God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. There are three loves there. You love God and you love your neighbor and you love yourself. Love, love is it. It's the one. You know, in the Bible, in all the Bible, it, said, it never says God is faith. It never says God is hope. But what does it say? God is love. It is him. It's the essence of who he is and it's the essence of where we're going. And to the degree we bring it into now is the same degree we will be changed. That's why we must work in the gospel. Because in the gospel, what do we see? The greatest love ever. Scripture tells us that greater love has none than this than one man laid down his life for another. Jesus is the picture. He is the power. He is the person that came in history, entered in, and laid down his life. He has shown the greatest love that we can ever imagine. And when you take that into yourself, you will become a lover. To the degree you do, you will become a lover. Paul ends this way. Look at verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Be steadfast. Immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Do you see where he was going the entire time? Maturity. Maturity. Steadfastness. Immovable. Abounding in work. Did you see James this last week? What does he say? Faith without works is dead. Faith without love is dead. That's where we're left. If we are going to be, if we're going to grow up in maturity, if I'm going to grow up in maturity, if we're going to be a church that matures and loves our city well, we have to take the faith, take our past, work it into our hearts, be shaped by the resurrection, and let it affect us, let it overfill us into love. That's what the word abound means. It means that a person who takes in something and it overflows out of them, abound in love, abound in the work of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for our time. Thank you for meeting us. Thank you that because of you, because of your work, we, we, ha- we can have a faith that's sure. We can be steadfast. We can be immovable because we have the hope. We have a new creation given to us. And I pray, God, you would teach us through your great love, through even when we take the elements today and remember your work, that you would, you would as, as, we, as we see it here, you would go into us and that you would create this energy and this motivation to go out and love. God, would you make our marriages different? Would you make our mission different? Would you make our city beautiful through the love you've given us? We pray in your name, amen.